Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposites of all those things. The last two episodes have been reviews of memoirs by Michael Arlen and Amos Oz, and today we're going to look at a work of fiction that is close to memoirs by the lightly comedic and often self-referential English novelist and critic David Lodge. The novel is called Deaf Sentence, that's deaf with an F. It was published in 2008, and I would like to make some kind of joke here about repeating certain things I just said. But whereas Lodge does this with ease, I'm just going to seem like an asshole. So I think I won't. Like I suspect most readers of David Lodge, I first encountered the author through his trilogy of campus novels, beginning with Nice Work. What I remember from those books are two specific things. One, extended explanations of parts of speech. In the case of Nice Work, it was the difference between synecdoche and metonymy. And two, descriptions of improbable, wish-fulfilling sexual encounters between older men and younger women. One day in the future, I will think back to the novel, Deaf Sentence, and probably remember the same two things. This is not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a thing. In Deaf Sentence, the central character is Desmond Bates, a surname I do find humorous. Bates is an old man who is losing his hearing, a little like David Lodge, and he is on the way out as a university professor, also a little like David Lodge. Deafness is the primary concern for Bates and for the novel. Early in the course of the story, which is set up like a diary of events written by the protagonist Desmond Bates, deafness is contrasted to blindness, and the distinctions are instructive. Deafness is comic as blindness is tragic. Take Oedipus, for instance. Suppose, instead of putting out his eyes, he had punctured his eardrums. It would have been more logical, actually, since it was through his ears that he learned the dreadful truth about his past. But it wouldn't have the same cathartic effect. It might arouse pity, perhaps, but not terror. Or Milton's Samson. Oh, dark, 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 amid the blaze of noon irrecoverably dark without all hope of day. What a heartbreaking cry of despair. Oh, deaf, deaf, deaf. Doesn't have the same pathos somehow. How would it go on? Oh, deaf, 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 amid the noise of noon, irrecoverably deaf without all hope of sound. No. The blind have pathos. Sighted people regard them with compassion, go out of their way to help them, guide them across busy roads, warn them of obstacles, stroke their guide dogs. The dogs, the white sticks, the dark glasses, are visible signs of their affliction, calling forth an instant rush of sympathy. We deafies have no such compassion-inducing warning signs. Our hearing aids are almost invisible, and we have no lovable animals dedicated to looking after us. What would be the equivalent of a guide dog for the deaf? A parrot on your shoulder squawking into your ear? Strangers don't realize you're deaf until they've been trying and failing to communicate with you for some time. And then it's with irritation 
rather than compassion. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, says the Bible. Leviticus 19.14 Well, only a sadist would deliberately trip up a blind person, but even Fred lets out the occasional bloody hell when she can't get through to me. Prophets and seers are sometimes blind. Tiresias, for instance, but never deaf. Imagine putting your question to the Sybil and getting an irritable, what? What? In reply, it's a very unequal contest between the two organs. And in Lodge's hands, it's very comedic. Indeed, part of the reason I came back to the author with this particular book, as opposed to his more celebrated and presumably more heavyweight recent effort, Author, Author, which was about Henry James, is because the parts about the hard-of-hearing department head in Nice Work are especially funny. Also, not a huge James fan. Yet. Point is, Lodge mines the same vein of humor in Deaf Sentence. Here, for example, he is describing a conversation that takes place near the beginning of the story between Desmond and his wife, Fred, short for Winifred, about an art exhibition they just attended. Who was that young blonde you were deep in conversation with? Fred asked me in the car on the way home. She was driving because she hadn't had much to drink and I had had quite a lot. I have no idea, I said. She told me her name twice, in fact, but I couldn't make it out. I didn't hear a word she was saying. The noise. It's all the concrete. It makes the sound reverberate. I thought she might be one of your customers. No, I'd never seen her before. What did you think of the exhibition? Drab. Boring. Anybody with a digital camera could take those pictures. But why bother? I thought they had a kind of interesting sadness. That is a condensed account of our conversation, which actually went something like this. Who was that young woman you were deep in conversation with? What? You were deep in conversation with the young blonde. I didn't see a Ron. Was he there? Not Ron, the blonde woman you were talking to. Who, who was she? Oh, I have no idea. She told me her name, twice in fact, but I couldn't make it out. I didn't hear a word she was saying. The noise, it's all the concrete. There's nothing wrong with the heating. In fact, it's always too bloody hot for my liking. No, concrete. The walls, the floor, it makes the sound reverberate. Oh. Pause. What did you think of the exhibition? I thought she might be one of your customers. Who? The young blonde woman. Oh, no, I've never seen her before. What did you think of the exhibition? What? The exhibition, what did you think? Drab. Boring. Anyone with a digital camera could take those pictures. I thought they had a kind of interesting sadness. Can badness be interesting? Sadness, an interesting sadness. Are you wearing your hearing aid, darling? Of course I am. It doesn't seem to be working very well. And it's not working very well because the battery is dead. When Desmond tries to cover up the fact, he removes the hearing aid and the conversation turns to this. Fred. Murmur, murmur. Me. What? Fred. Murmur, murmur. Me. Playing for time. Aha. Uh-huh. Fred. Murmur, murmur. Me making a guess at the content of the message. All right. Fred 
surprised. What? Me. What did you say? Fred. Why did you say all right if you didn't hear what I said? Me. Let me get my hearing aid. Fred. No, don't bother. It's not important. This exchange goes from funny to sad, although as far as Desmond is concerned, the fact that it is ever funny at all is the problem. For the reader, the transition between poles is what makes the situation particularly rich. Desmond's second condition, semi-retirement, offers him another set of problems. As Desmond slides into semi-obsolescence, his wife, Fred, who had recently embarked on an interior decorating career, is starting to take over what Desmond once regarded as his roles in the home, specifically being the main breadwinner and all that comes with that. Desmond's ego has deflated accordingly. When he accompanied her to this or that social event, he sometimes felt like a royal consort, escorting a female monarch, walking a pace or two behind her with his hands joined behind his back, a vague, unfocused smile on his face. What happens then is that between the two conditions, deafness and dotage, Desmond gets himself into trouble. And Trouble's name is Alex Loom. That would be the young blonde woman with whom Desmond was speaking at the art opening. Because Desmond's more or less deaf, though, he has no real idea of what he was talking with Alex about. As it turns out, Alex is a doctoral student at the university that Desmond has left, and they were talking about getting her supervision help for her dissertation. Her current supervisor, a man not incidentally named Butterworth, is not giving her the kind of help that Alex feels she needs. Fast forward slightly, and the reader finds Desmond, who has unwittingly offered to help Alex, meeting her at her flat. And because Desmond is bumbling and barely manages to catch half of what is going on around him, he ends up leaving Alex's flat with a pair of her panties. 9th November There was a strange sequel to my visit to Alex Loom. I was getting ready this afternoon to go to the bank and the post office in our local high street, and decided to wear my overcoat. I hadn't worn it since Tuesday, because yesterday the weather was mild and wet, but today was chilly again. As I was buttoning up the coat and checking my appearance in the hall, I noticed a slight bulge over my chest, as if there was a bunched-up handkerchief or small scarf in the inside breast pocket of the overcoat. I slid my hand into the pocket and, like an involuntary conjurer, drew out a pair of women's knickers. I held them out, extended between my index fingers and thumbs, and stared at them. They were made of white cotton with a narrow lace trim. I realized instantly how they had got into my pocket. I had used Alex's toilet before I made my departure, the cups of tea having exerted an uncomfortable pressure on my bladder, and she must have taken the opportunity to stuff a pair of her knickers, or panties as she would call them, into my overcoat as some kind of postscript to our conversation. I've written a note in the margin next to this paragraph. The note says, no, 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 no. Because, no. This is not a plausible outcome of a meeting between a very good-looking grad student in her 20s and a retired, rapidly deteriorating and, lest it needs repeating, old man. Breaks in plausibility, unless intentional and self-conscious on the part of the writer, are hard to recover from. At this point, the reader has a choice, except the author has made an error and tried to minimize it, or stop reading. And unless you're a triple-A dick, you go with the first. Forgive, try to forget, fail to forget, 
Look for something shiny to distract you, find it, move on. It does help somewhat that Desmond refuses the so-called gift. 24th November. I've just come back from a very disturbing visit to Alex Loom. She's either totally irresponsible or mentally unbalanced, or perhaps both, and I deeply regret that I ever got involved with her. Still, her motivations are mysterious, and not even a healthy exposition of Alex's unhealthy past, and for that matter, present, the panty drop is just a beginning, is enough to save it. So we ignore it as much as possible, because the book is still largely enjoyable, and move on. Alex Loom's intrusions into Desmond's professional and eventually and inevitably personal life are perhaps the most pressing of Desmond's concerns, but as we've heard already, he's got his hands full. Butterworth enters the picture, and it turns out he had given Alex what she wanted. Desmond's wife, Fred, has social aspirations that are incompatible with her hermetic husband's. Desmond goes on holiday to a very strange adult theme park. And Desmond's father refuses to move into an assisted care home, though who could blame him? If Desmond's relationship with Alex Loom is the least plausible aspect of the novel, Desmond's relationship with his father is the most, and consequently, the most affecting. Desmond lives in middle-class luxury. Quick guide to England, everyone calls him or herself middle-class unless they are aristocrats, in which case they never need to wash their hair, or lower-class, which I would think is a self-explanatory term. I would think, incidentally, is particularly English. Somehow dodging the term they mean to use, assume, because that would be obnoxious. Any case, the class system is about birth, not money, though they do often corroborate. So while Desmond lives well in the middle class, in a happy suburb halfway up the country, his father lives in the destitution of the middle class, in a miserable suburb outside London. The father owns his house, but it's small, and since his wife died, it's also a seemingly shrinking wreck, which is a good illustration of the man who dwells inside it. All the more poignant, then, is it to contemplate him now, stripped of all these life-enhancing interests. He has only one hobby these days, saving money, observing prices, economizing on food, clothing, and household bills. It's no use asking him what he is saving the money for, or pointing out that if he drew more deeply on his assets, he would be very unlikely to exhaust them, and that in such a contingency I would provide whatever funds were necessary. Indeed, he is apt to take such comments as unfeeling hints that he hasn't got much longer to live, which is, of course, in actuarial terms true, but not what I mean to convey. I knew that the drawers of the bureau desk behind my back were stuffed with a disordered collection of old bills and bank statements, tax forms and share certificates and national savings certificates, checkbook stubs and paying-in books and building society passbooks, and premium bond counterfoils and God knows what else, and that when he woke up, he would almost certainly want my advice on some item plucked from this financial midden. Sure enough, when he awoke of his own accord and had revived himself with a cup of tea, he went over to the desk and pulled out some correspondence to do with national savings. The smallness, the meanness of Desmond's father's life is, unlike the condition of deafness, unremittingly tragic. 
It is also as precise a description of the lives of millions of Britons, whether old, poor, or both, as I have read. I remember an English newspaper's fiction review that ended with what was apparently meant to be the most withering takedown, that the novel in question did not deal with class. Being a North American, I did not understand why this was considered essential, but after three years of living in London, I can now see why it is. A novel about today's England that doesn't deal with class isn't a novel about today's England. Class determines the shape of nearly every interaction in that world, and therefore must play a prominent role in the representation of this reality. Class exists in Desmond and Winifred's marriage, in Desmond's relations with his in-laws, in Winifred's business, but it is most fully explored in the description of the father's flat. Speaking of class in a different sense, I want to say a thing about Lodge's description of campus life. The Lodge has done as much as Nabokov in shaping the conventions of the campus novel. The campus Lodge describes, in deaf sentence, bears little resemblance to today's university and college settings, and will bear less resemblance as time moves on. As much as money is the obsession of Desmond's father's life, it has become the unique determining factor within the university campus. The world of ideas has become secondary to the world of grant applications, publications, and other kinds of self-proliferation. Whether you are an individual, a department, or in the administration, bringing in the DOSH is the name of the game, and this shift in priorities seeps into the lowest levels, that lowest level being, sadly, the classroom. Lodge does hint at this by comparing the high-flying Colin Butterworth to the low-lying Desmond Bates, but it would be nice to see this author, who has made this territory his own, devote an entire novel to these new developments. At age 79, though, who knows if he will. I often bitch and moan about novels that do not deliver on the promise of the novel form, which is to tell a story in a new way, or in some ways that are new. I especially have difficulty with novels that are wound so closely around the ideas that give birth to them that they don't take off, becoming essayistic elucidations of their themes. I also know that I have little patience for books that choose to be plot-driven but don't allow the plot to drive things. But evidence of the fact that I'm not entirely sclerotic is that I'll say the best parts of Deaf Sentence are in fact the quasi-historical essays into the affliction of deafness. We heard a bit of that already, but I wanted to close by quoting at length from Bates slash Lodge's Investigations into Deafness by the great Spanish artist Francisco Goya. Is there anything to be said in favor of deafness? Any saving grace? Any enhancement of the other senses? I don't think so. Not in my case, anyway. Maybe in Goya's. I read a book about Goya which said it was his deafness that made him into a major artist. Until he was in his mid-forties, he was a competent but conventional painter of no great originality. Then he contracted some mysterious paralytic illness which deprived him of sight, speech, and hearing for several weeks. When he recovered, he was stone deaf and remained so for the rest of his life. All his greatest work belongs to the deaf period of his life. The caprices, the disasters of war, the proverbs, the black paintings, all the dark, nightmarish ones. This critic said it was as if his deafness had lifted a veil, 
When he looked at human behavior undistracted by the babble of speech, he saw it for what it was, violent, malicious, cynical, and mad, like a dumb show in a lunatic asylum. I saw the black painting some years ago when I was in Madrid on a British Council lecture tour and went back to the Prado twice for another look. Goya painted them as murals for his house in the country. The local people called it La Quinta del Sordo, the house of the deaf man. But later they were lifted off the walls and transferred onto canvas. Now they're in the Prado, Saturn devouring his children, the witch's Sabbath, fight with clubs, and the rest predominantly black and pigment as well as subject matter. But the one that always has the most spectators lingering in front of it, intrigued and puzzled, is lighter in color tone than the others. It's known as the dog overwhelmed by sand. It might be a modern abstract expressionist painting composed of three great planes of predominantly brownish color, two vertical and one horizontal, if it wasn't for the head of a little black dog at the bottom of the picture, painted almost in cartoon style, buried up to its neck in what might be sand, looking upwards pathetically and apprehensively at a descending mass of more of the same stuff. There are lots of theories about what the picture means, like the end of enlightenment or the advent of modernity, but I know what it means to me. It's an image of deafness. Deafness pictured as an imminent, inevitable, inexorable suffocation. That's all he wrote. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by some guy. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. A special thanks to Natalie Matheson, reader of excerpts. Okay. He used to joke about... What's the tone of this? What that it guy is so fucking buttery. He's so silky when he writes. Okay. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. I already know the answer to this one. What do you call yes, potato snacks? Crisps. And, as always, go Jays.